Um, there is some um, other kinds of things Hosea says, and I think we'll see through chapter 11 a little more variety of uh, ways God approaches this. And uh, some of these chapters right now, 11 and, and 12, I think are a couple of my favorite chapters in Hosea. Uh, because they do say some things that are very uh, moving and impressive. So, chapter 11, verses 1 to 7. <coughs> when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. As they, as they called him, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to great images. I taught Ephraim and to go, taking them by their arms. But they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. He shall not return into the land of Egypt, and the Assyrians shall be his king, because they refuse to return. And the sword shall abide on his cities, and shall consume his branches, and devour them, because of their own counsels. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. Now, what do you see? God saying in wonder form. What's he emphasizing? How much he provided for them when they were young. Absolutely. Which makes their rebellion more outrageous. But you look at all that God had done for them. When Israel was a youth, for example, I loved him and out of Egypt. I called my son. You remember that? <coughs> what do we call that, period? <coughs> the Exodus. You know, think about what a blessing it was to Israel that God cared about them and he loved them and he rescued them and delivered them. You could never think of the history of Israel without thinking about how God had delivered them from bondage and made something out of them. But the more God did, verse 2, they did what? <coughs> Kept saying, yeah, the more God blessed them, the more they turned away from him. Which is outrageous. Look at verse 3 and 4. What picture do you see of God here? <coughs> father over a little kid. Yes, doing what? Teaching walk. Yes. Can't you see God bent over and teaching Israel how to walk? You know, the baby steps and, you know, things like that. The tenderness and gentleness got taking them in his arms and, you know, embracing them and giving them security and comfort. And, uh, you know, he, he bent down and lifted the yoke from their jaws. He bent down and fed them. You know, look at all that God had done. So tender, so loving, so patient, so gentle with his people. You ever think of God in those pictures, those those terms? That's really cool, isn't it? Is, is that an accurate picture of God? Yeah, I think it is. I think that's exactly how God had treated he really loved him. He cared about him. He was so patient with him. But, something happened. What happened? They refused to repent. Exactly. They refused to repent. So God's going to punish them. It is worse that they won't repent when you think about all God had done for them. Because it's so ungrateful. It's just, it's just spitting in the face of the one who's done everything to them. It's just, it's just, it's not right. You know, maybe you can relate. I mean, you ever seen just a really smart, alec, rebellious kid who actually has some really nice parents? You know, but, but it's just really, you know, really arrogant, really rebellious. It seems worse if, when you know the parents have been really nice to them. You know, it's like 
you know, that's not the way you ought to treat somebody who's done so much for you. You know, God had done so much for them, and, and they just, they won't refuse to return to him. They refuse to turn to him. It says, <laughs> verse 7, they're bent on turning from me. You know, they just got a real, uh, real determination to turn away from me. That's, that's how they were turning. So God's going to punish them. But can you see how much this would have hurt God? You know, how, how painful it is to have cared for them so tenderly and gently and loved them so much and hugged them and embraced them and then they just, they just refuse to have any respect for the Lord whatsoever. I don't know, what do you think about this? Well, I think that obviously applies to us today, you know, blesses us with many abundant things, with people, with physical things, and then we take it, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, uh, there's so much of it, I take it for granted, and I forget who, who provided and gave it all to me, and God's like, I'll take it away from you, just kind of sweeps you up your little pussy and helps you see reality. You're right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes is there anything else you can do but that? I mean, what, what options does God have in this situation? They weren't going to respond to his love and tenderness. Sometimes the only thing you can do is try to beat some sense into you know, a nation. That's basically what God's going to do with Israel. Thoughts and comments through verse 7. Shane. Um, you know, I think about it's like this picture of a father with a, with a child, a small child, who loves this child. You can see that so much. Yet he, he doesn't try to control them. He allows them to have their own free will. He lets them turn from him. Wanting, hoping, one day they will return to his love, but allows them to have their free will. Recognizing there's nothing he can do. He doesn't, he doesn't want love that, you know, love that he makes, a love that you deserve isn't as precious as one that is undeserved. Yeah, love. For, you don't want love to be forced. Exactly. So you see him not controlling his people here, but allowing them to come to him freely. So how does it feel to be God in this situation? You know, we don't think enough about God's feelings about these things. You know, is God just emotionless and doesn't care what happens? Well, clearly not. God had been so gentle with them and cared so much about them. Can you imagine how much this hurts God? Have you ever had you know, real compassion and concern that you've showed to somebody else, and then they just step on you. They're just really cruel and mean to you. How, how does that make you feel usually? Worthless. Worthless? You're right. And then usually, angry. Hurt and angry. You know, <laughs> because, I mean, when I've done that much, to try to serve and to help, and you treat me that way? <laughs> now you think about that reaction on God's part. That is the very understanding. You can see totally why God would punish this people. It's outrageous. Alright, comments and questions through some. Yeah, we're so hesitant to take punishment for ourselves. We can see why God would punish these people, but we can't see it for ourselves. Yes. Why, why are you punishing me? Why do I have to do it? You know, we can't see it for ourselves. We know. <laughs> we say. All right. Here, I have a quick question. <clears throat> you know, back when we were studying Romans with Paul Earnhardt, and he was talking about, the, um, like in Romans 1, with the wrath of God, and he talked about the, the wrath of God not being a, is a judicial wrath, um, and I don't really understand some of that. When you think about the anger of God, and you think about Jesus cleansing the temple, um, I mean, he was very angry, and I don't know that I, and I know God is not just appreciate; he just doesn't go off the drop of a hat, but, I mean, can, can you explain some, I don't even know if I understand some kind of judicial wrath, or... Uh, well, I think the thing I would say is God's wrath is never wrong. You know, God, if, if God punishes or if God has wrath, it's always deserved. It's never that God had a bad day and he just lashed out. So, I mean, to me, judicial wrath would be just that 
he doesn't punish when the punishment is not deserved. <coughs> I do think God is emotional with the punishment, <coughs> although I'm really setting myself up for the next section is what I'm doing with that. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, but I, I do think God gets upset. And, I mean, I think Jesus in the temple is a good example. He was outraged. <laughs> to me, God's wrath is the most understandable quality God has. I can see that. I can absolutely see why God's so angry. Man, I mean, I've never even begun to do for anybody a fraction of what God has done for these people, for example. A lot of people. And, 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 wow, I just can't imagine being treated this way. It would just, would that burn me up? So, I mean, to me, God, God being angry and punishing, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think so many times we're so quick to judge the Israelites, and well, of course they were wrong, but we really have to look at ourselves because are we really that much different? I mean, sure, I don't think that many of us have a problem with, with um, to such an extreme as these, as the Israelites, but you know. We can't be so judgmental without looking at ourselves first. Amen. Yes, I think that's exactly where this needs to lead us. Not just to lamenting how horrible the Israelites were, but examining our own life and seeing how much we're like them. Good point, Jacob. Right, look at this next section. I want to. This is this is unbelievable. You know, he says in five, they will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refuse to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities, and will demolish their gate bars, and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, so they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. Now, eight through eleven. destroy you from him again, for I am God and not man, 
When he says here, I am God and not man, what's the point he's making? Since he's God and not man, what? Man, when they get angry at another nation, they go in and they take care of it because they have no compassion. So since he's God and not man, what does he have that we don't? More, more mercy, more love, more compassion. That's incredible. I would have said, I would have thought he had said, well, I'm God and not man, therefore I'm going to punish. Therefore I got wrath. He's saying, no, I'm God and not man, therefore I love so much more. And I'm more compassionate, I'm more merciful. That is amazing. I understand God's wrath. I don't understand his love. I don't understand why you feel like this. I don't understand why you wouldn't want to totally exterminate them. He says, I will not come in wrath. In fact, he's going to gather them up and bring them back to himself again. God's, God's mercy is unbelievable. That God would care about these people. Why in the world? Why in the world would the father of the prodigal son who's been just absolute, unconcerned about any value the father had, blown the entire inheritance he was given with a bunch of garbage, get down and out, and he comes, you know, trudging back home. I can understand the older brother. Please give him a good whipping. You're just going to take him in like this, are you? The father has, feels compassion for this no-count son, runs to meet him, hugs him, and kisses him, throws a party for him. That is hard to understand. Rather than hard to understand in situations, the love and mercy is. That is such an amazing thing about God. That is the thing that touches us about God. Is that he still loves me. In spite of everything I've done to me. That is amazing. We would not be like that. We get hardened. Bitterness and resentment sets in. We finally get to the point where we don't want to have any more to do. <coughs> a man whose wife betrays him over and over again. And he finally gets to the point where he's numb. I don't care if she repents or not. I don't want her. I'm done with her. I don't want to hurt anyone. And God exposes himself again and again and again to being hurt and betrayed. Because he loves us as God and not man. This is an amazing passage. So encouraging. Just so unbelievable. <coughs> Comments and thoughts. I think we're so quick to judge people. And, you know, we might look at somebody and say, well, they made a fornication, they uh, killed somebody. But we forget that you lied or into your thoughts or something. We're quick to judge the people and we don't want to forgive them. But we're, we're the same. We need to remember that God hasn't sinned and He's willing to forgive us. Amen. That's amazing. You got to think about, you know, the idea of this, of God reaching down and continuing for us. You know, this awesome, amazing God is powerful shows so many signs of vulnerability in our eyes. That he would reach down to us. This is a God who is, you know, that never loses. This is a God who is always victorious, but yet shows so much vulnerability towards us. In our eyes, shows somewhat weakness. Um, but he got his own weakness for us. Amen. Amazing. Yeah, I, this picture that we have of, of God uh, aligning with the story of the prodigal son. You know, I've heard it put that in in that story, it's actually the father who's the prodigal one. Prodigal isn't a word that we use a lot, but it means to, to give away what you have to a point that it's it's foolishly wasteful. And in that story, in a way, the, the father is the one who's giving away his love in a wasteful, senseless fashion. And and it, and. I mean, who among us can say that, that we would have given away our possessions and given away our love in that in that sort of a way? And yet God cares about us enough that he is willing to love those who don't 
merit it in, in any way, shape, or form. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> wow, where would we be if it weren't for that? These are great passages, man. We miss things like this when we don't study Hosea. We miss a lot. And uh, just the, the amazing nature of what God says. You know, how could you ever script this? I mean, you know, if God didn't write this, what man would have dared think this? <laughs> wow! You know, I mean, the, the gods that were invented by man certainly don't have these kind of qualities. You know, it's just, it's just amazing. It's certainly a lesson for us. It's a lesson that gives us hope. And it is definitely a lesson that gives us, should give us mercy and compassion toward others. Mm-hmm. All right, anything you want to say through the letter? All right, how about 11.12 and 12.1? Ephraim <clears throat> has encircled me with lies, and the house of Israel is deceived. But Judah still walks with God even with the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. And also they make a covenant with the Assyrians and oil is carried to Egypt. Okay. Now there's a debate, uh, there's a difference in the translation in verse 12. My translation has Ephraim surrounds me with lies in the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. So is he saying something positive or negative about Judah? Uh, either way, Ephraim clearly is hypocritical and unfaithful, feeding on the wind, pursuing the east wind. They're, they're dealing, they're trying to control something that's out of their control. Because when they make these double-crossing agreements with Assyria, with Egypt, they are playing with fire, and they are trying to make a pet out of a tiger, and it's not going to work. It's, it's just so foolish for them to try to, to, to dabble with international politics and try to get these big players on their side. They are going to create a disaster for themselves. That's one of the things that you see so much in the prophets. God's saying, trust me and do not make these alliances with these nations. It never worked. It never blessed them. It always came back and backfired on them. Because God was the, supposed to be the only source of trust and confidence that they had. Comments and questions on those two verses. <clears throat> yes, Bob. Yeah, I think it all goes back to eight fourteen. He just says, "Israel has forgotten. They have forgotten that one man could rout a thousand. You know, yes. Those things they've lost them as a nation. They don't. The fathers aren't teaching the sons. They have no faith. So the only place they look is what appears to be powerful, and that's these proposed allies. And I'm never taking the thought for this this powerful God that's begging them to return. If you see how powerful God is, they don't need any allies. You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, if you've got the, the, you know, powerhouse of the school on your side, you don't need some alliance with some kindergarten student. You know, they're not going to help you any. You know, God's on our side. We don't need anybody else. But they, they never saw that. Other thoughts? Blake? In verse 2, I mean, uh, the second verse, um, when it says, also they make a covenant with the Assyrians and Moros carry to Egypt, is that like, um, and take the stuff down and say, here it is the stuff that you protect Yes, that's exactly what it is. They were buying the protection, they were trading their stuff. In exchange for these nations to protect them, which never worked because the nations never protected. They only took advantage of the stuff and then invaded whatever they wanted to. Other questions or comments? Okay. Yeah. Um, I think it's 
Judges 10, and God had already delivered them in several cases of unfaithfulness and sin. Judges, and then they went and did it again. And they cried out to God, and he basically said, you're on your own. You know, you, you went this way, you go, you go find help somewhere else. And they really came back. They really repented, and their, their hearts turned back. And they said, do whatever you want, but just save us. And um, in chapter 10, verse 16, it says, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Jehovah. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Yeah, it's, you know, certainly there are several passages where, you know, God just can't handle, you know, punishing his people anymore. He wants to bless them. Well, we've got some meditations on Jacob here. This is a little cryptic, but let's see what we can figure out about this. Two to six. The Lord also had a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings, will he recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. Therefore, turn around about God, keep mercy, keep judgment, and wait on thy God continually. Okay. Now, the Lord has a dispute against Judah, and he'll punish Jacob according to his ways. Jacob would be the other name for Israel, in a sense, and God is going to punish in proportion to Israel's sins. But then, he uses this idea of Jacob to talk about the actual historical man, Jacob. Now, trying to understand three and four is a challenge, I would submit to you that trying to understand the life of Jacob is a bit of a challenge. And I'm going to offer my take on Jacob and then apply it to this. You don't have to agree with this, but here's what I think is going on in Jacob's life. You probably know a lot of the stories of Jacob. Look to me like that Jacob, being a heel grabber, was always trying to connive his way into the blessings God had promised instead of trusting God. So you remember what he did to swindle the birthright out of his brother, don't you? What he did? He sold his soup. Yeah, he sold his pot of soup or whatever for his birthright. You remember what he did to swindle the blessing from Esau, don't you? Dressed up like his brother. And impersonated as Esau before his father. You remember what he did to swindle the best animals from Laban, don't you? Well, yeah, it's kind of funny, but... The stripes and... Yeah! Yeah, putting uh, striped branches in front of the best cattle when they mate because he'd said he'd take the striped and spotted and speckled, and everybody knows that whatever cows look at when they mate, that's the way their offspring's going to look, right? <laughs> <laughs> it worked. Didn't it work? Why did it work? Yeah, had nothing to do with what they looked at when they were mating. Anymore that him getting the blessing of the birthright had to do with those stupid things he did to try to get them. God had already said the younger, the older would serve the younger. God had already said the blessing would pass through Jacob. Jacob didn't, didn't need to do a single one of those things to be blessed by God, but Jacob is the guy that's always got his own plan, always got his own scheme, always trying to swindle what God promised to give him. Until one point in his life when no longer did he have a plan that he trusted in. Remember that point in his life? 
Yeah, what was going on right there? He was about to meet Esau, who's coming with a bunch of men after 20 years. Last he'd known Esau was out to kill him. Esau's coming with the men. Now he sends presents ahead. He does all this stuff. I don't think he has any confidence that that's going to help. And so that night, he wrestles with the man of God. Now I think that wrestling with the man of God is really what Jacob had been doing all his life. God had been wrestling with him for a long time, trying to humble Jacob and get him to turn to him instead of having a plan of his own. And that night, when Jacob wrestles with the angel, and the angel gets ready to leave because morning's coming, remember what Jacob did? He said, he asked for a blessing. And he, he, he said he wasn't going to do what? I forgot that part. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. We didn't think he needed a blessing before. He'd always had a plan. It's fine. God's finally put him in a spot where he can't handle it on his own. And he doesn't have any confidence in his plan. And he finally hangs on to God and says, you got to bless me. I, I need you. And God changes his name from a heel grabber to a prince with God, Israel. And uh, I think that's the transformation that he's wanting his namesake, the nation, to undergo. He says, in the womb he took his brother by the heel, in his maturity he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethlehem. And he spoke with us. I think he's saying to the nation, you need to quit being a Jacob and be an Israel. You need to quit having your own plan and scheme and, and hang on to me and beg me for a blessing and see me as the one you ought to trust in and not your own ideas. That's what I see in the comparison with Jacob, and that's what I see in Jacob's story. Comments and questions? I just had one thought. Uh, David had two times, he, David, he had two times he could have killed Saul, the bee king, and Jacob could have waited, like you were saying, and it's kind of interesting to think about that. You know, does God ever depend on my stupid, sinful plans to accomplish his will? You know, is there ever a time I'm going to have to sin to get God's will to accomplish? <laughs> Never. You know what I think? Well, i just got to do this my way. No, you don't have to do it your way. Why can't you trust the Lord? That's exactly right. David's an excellent example. You just do it God's way. I don't know what God would have done, but I, man, God's got Tremendous versatility. He's always been able to handle every other situation. Why won't he handle this one? And we'll just trust him and do what's right instead of having to feel like, well, we've got to take matters in our own hands and do it our own way. And so they get in trouble. They're scared. And they run off to Syria. They run down to Egypt. They go wherever and do whatever. Why not trust the Lord? Why not come to realize you need the Lord's blessing? You don't need your blessing. Comments and questions. Um, with having a plan, I think oftentimes we look ahead at things that we might have instead of thanking God every day for the moments that we have. Yes. Right now, that He has given us this, that everything we have is a blessing for Him, that we may not have tomorrow. So we must praise Him with everything we have, every day that we have. Amen. Amen. It's interesting that Jacob found God at Bethel because that's where his people left him. <laughs> they left the golden calf. <laughs> you know, he'd come back to God at Bethel. He says, uh, you know, return to your God, verse 6. Deserve kindness and justice. Wait for your God continually. You patiently depend on him. Let him lead the way. And quit trying to snatch God's blessings by your own efforts. That idea of waiting on the Lord. Trust Him. Depend on Him. Don't take matters into your own hands. And don't ever do something wrong to try to accomplish God's purpose. 
too, that I mean, Jacob, the supplanter or the trickster, was always the one getting paid back for his tricks. You look at, you look how he was deceived with, uh, with Leah. Yes. Um, you yes. look how he was deceived by his sons. Yes. And Joseph was sold when he said he's dead. Yes. And you think about how many times we've, we've tried to do things our way, and it keeps coming back to bite us, and yet we continue to say, you know what? I'm going to figure this out one way or another if it kills me, and it usually ends up Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. The same Jacob that deceived his father with goat skin was defeated, deceived by his son with goat's blood. It's really amazing. We do reap what we sow, and he reaped what he sowed over and over again. You know, the same Jacob that passed himself off as the elder brother to his father had Laban pass uh, Leah off as her younger sister to him. You know, there's so much irony in those things. You reap what you sow in such amazing ways. Other thoughts? Okay, how about uh, 7 to 14? A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress and eats in his Surely I have become rich, I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors and they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. But I have been Lord, your God, since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of the appointed festival. I have also spoken to the prophets, and I gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables. Is there iniquity in Galilee? There are worthless at Gilgal. They sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now Jacob fled to the land of Abram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him, and bring back his <coughs> blood to him. Alright, look at verse 7. What do you see in Israel? <coughs> Unethical practices. Unethical practices. Yeah. I was going to say they're like the people that used to live with. Yeah, absolutely. Like the Canaanites. Cheating in business. <coughs> oppressing. God is concerned about justice and honesty. Cheating is wrong. But look at their attitude in verse 8. Isn't this amazing? Ephraim said, surely I'd become rich. I suppose verse 7 has something to do with how. <laughs> surely I'd become rich. I found wealth for myself. And, and Ephraim interprets that as, as meaning what? You must be doing okay. Yeah, God must be happy with me. Wow, isn't that outrageous? You know, they cheated and swindled their way into prosperity, in quotes, and then turn around and use that to prove that they must be right with God. That is not right. You know, just because at the moment God has let you enjoy your ill-gotten gains, don't interpret that as a sign God's pleased with you. Prosperity does not make right. That's for sure. Comments and questions on 7 and 8? kind of looks like they're condoning themselves. Yes. Because, I mean, in verse 7, they're using false balances, and then in verse 8, when to keep their conscience from getting to them, they're saying, you know, if God blesses me, he wouldn't bless me if there was any iniquity, so that must not be sin. Yes. And I think we do that ourselves sometimes, too. Yeah, I think we can. You know, we can use success and then say, well, that must mean God was pleased because he gave me the success. Well, God sometimes lets wicked people have temporary success. It hardens them. <laughs> makes their fall 
you know, more spectacular. You can't, you can't judge by somebody's prosperity today what God's opinion is of their behavior. And then, in verse 9, it says, I've been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I'm going to make you live in tents again. I'm going to drive you back out into the wilderness. Let's kick you out of your land with your homes. You know, I, I've spoken to you in the prophets. I gave you numerous visions. Look at all that God had done to try to teach these people about their sins and they wouldn't listen. So he says, if they're iniquity in Gilead, surely they're worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Now, Gilead, Gilgal, and, and the piles of stones all have the same consonants in Hebrew. So he's making a play on words. They're, they, the people of Gilead and Gilgal, are about as empty as a pile of stones. That's what was going to happen to their altars. So God was going to punish them because they haven't been listening to the message that he's been revealing to, to them through his prophets. Comments and questions through verse 11. Now, 12 to 14 is also a bit cryptic. It looks to me like he may be drawing a comparison between the person Jacob and the nation of Israel. He says, Jacob fled to the land of Aram, Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. Well, the nation of Israel had fled to the land of Egypt. And just as Laban had taken advantage of Jacob, so Pharaoh had taken advantage of, of the Israelites. Um, but they both ended up coming out with the wealth of their hosts. God delivered them. Um, and so he may try to be setting up a comparison between Jacob fleeing to Aram and getting a wife and Israel being in Egypt and being blessed by God. But he says in verse 13, but by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt and by a prophet he was kept if he was provoked to bitter anger so God's going to punish him. You know, after all God did for Israel, they were unfaithful to God, so God's going to cause their sin to boomerang against them. Um, so, he's using Jacob a lot here to try to show the need for them to repent and, and the punishment he's going to bring upon them for their sin. Do you have comments and questions on chapter 12? Chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. Now they sinned more and more, and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver, according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say to them, Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud, and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. Right. Ephraim became the predominant tribe in Israel. They exalted themselves, but through Baal did wrong and die. They sinned more and more, the idols, the molten images. They even kissed these, these calves, isn't that absurd, in their worship. Um, you know, so he's condemning Ephraim for idolatry, for Baal worship, and what's he going to make them like? Clouds. Yeah, like a cloud? What do you know about clouds? What's he trying to, in what sense is he comparing them with a morning cloud? God. Or they're like what? The dew that's gone, or like chaff or smoke, is quickly blown away. They aren't going to last long. They worship nothing, they get nothing, they're going to end up as nothing. God is going to wipe them away. You know, they're, they're no more substantial than a cloud, the dew, the chaff, the smoke from the chimney. So, God is going to punish them quickly. <laughs> Comments and questions?
have much substance. They're just kind of goofy. You're exactly right. If they had the Lord, they would have had some substance. Without the Lord, they're empty. Other comments? Okay. How about four to eight? the Lord your God since the land of Egypt and you were and you were not to know any God except me. There is no Savior besides me. I care for you in the wilderness, in the land of death. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. <coughs> they forgot me, so I will be like a lion to them. Like a, like a leopard, I will lie and wait by the wayside. I will counter them like a bear robbed up with blood. I will tear open their chest. There I will also devour them like a lioness, like the wild beast which made them. Look at verse 4 and 5. What had God done? gave them the land and he said you're supposed to be I'm supposed to be your only God you know don't have any other God or Savior besides me you know but what happened as God brought them into the land blessing leads us to pride that leads us to forget the God that gives us the prosperity and the blessing. It shouldn't work that way, but that's exactly what happened. They came into the land, they got fat and satisfied, and they quit turning to the Lord and recognizing Him as the source of their blessings after all He'd done for them. I wonder if God ever thinks after all I've done for you, look what you're doing with what, what I'm giving you. Look at how ungrateful you are. So how, what kind of animals was God going to be like? Lions and leopards and bears. Yeah, exactly right. Now a lion represents what? Power. Power. And a leopard. <coughs> Speed. Maybe cunning also. And a bear robbed of her cubs. Anger is probably not the word. What's the stronger word than anger? Rage. Fury, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I, you know, if we've got a stronger word than that, that's the one. I mean, man, you rob a bear of her cubs, what will she do? Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you what, you don't want to meet a bear robbed of her cubs, that's for sure. And, uh, and like a lioness, like a wild beast. Um, God is going to punish them because they have not um, not responded properly to all the blessings God has given. All right, come and see questions through Bob. Yeah, back in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight, verse twenty-two, it says, "Remember that God, God told them that very thing: Do not." For when your bellies are full and your houses are over your heads and you're richly blessed, don't forget me. Because he was telling us that those things can become idols to them, you know, to take their place as they can for us this day. This very day, the same thing. We think they receive it on our own hands and that it's come from him that we forget. Exactly. Yeah, it's... uh... It really is probably more dangerous sometimes for us to be blessed and prosper than for us to suffer. Because it's in the it's in the good times we have such a tendency to forget God. Bob. Just one other add on there that just a couple weeks ago Bob Buchanan came to Avon and gave a, gave a lesson and kind of an update on Zimbabwe. 
and the work that he does down there. He said one of the things, of course, for those who don't know the people, this you know they may eat every three days, and they just eat uh, corn meal that's been heated up with water and it's a paste, and it fills their bellies because they can drink water after that. That's they're just a base. They show a tent with just two or three little things, maybe a blanket and a pan and a couple of cots, which the people slept on. That was all their worldly possessions. Brother Bob said, he said one of the first things he has to do when he comes back to state is spend a, a couple uh, a couple days praying for patience. And he comes into this world of plenty and he sees a lack of faith. When these people say, Bob, you can't bring us food, but you can bring us the gospel. So I wouldn't it do all of us so much good. Be there and you know, it's outrageous to me how ungrateful we are for what God gives us. Myself also. And how how we ever complain. It's amazing. And, I, you know, I, I, Brazil is nothing like Zimbabwe. But I was bound to determine when I moved back to Brazil, I'm never going to be materialistic like I was before. I don't think I've kept that determination as well as I intended to. So easy to forget those things. Wow, we have been so blessed. That ought to make us more grateful to God and more eager to serve Him, not less. You know, can you imagine? How many how many of us would be fine with walking all all day to come to a study maybe for a day or two and having very little to eat? You know? Well, I think one thing that helped is because I, I did go to Zimbabwe and I did go to the villages. And there's this one woman that still sticks in my mind. She was probably 60s, 70s. She was very crippled, very hard to be moving. She had no shoes, she had crippled feet, and she walked. I think she walked five to seven miles. And these roads are not roads. They're rocky, dangerous paths. And she walked. She wanted to hear about God. These people were zealous for the Lord. They had nothing. They had next to nothing. But they taught me true happiness. Because their faith was towards God. And not among physical things that we depend on so much for. That really helps to put yourself in reality. Because they put America on a pedestal. Oh, to be in America. And I'm like... There's nothing compared to what they have. The love for the Lord. And zealous to learn and to be zealous for him. Amen. Yeah, Brazilians will do the same thing. They, they so much wish they could be in America where they, we have all these strong Christians. I'm thinking a lot of times, wow, you'll be so disappointed if you ever come. You know. Yeah, and I see a lot that they're happy, more happy than I have ever been. They have reached a happiness. They have... No source of food. I know it's worse now than when I was there, but no source of, of food or the next meal, but they were happy. They were truly happy. It was a wonderful blessing. It's a great lesson. We do not need any physical thing for happiness. Period. You know, when we get to complaining and feeling sorry for ourselves, and well, you know, I don't have this or that. How can I be happy? Which ridiculous. Just value the Lord. Seek Him. Nothing else matters. That was a good, good lesson. Thank you for sharing this. Other thoughts? I think we can get down on um, the butler with Joseph, who forgot and forgot when he went into Pharaoh. But we do the same thing with God. You know, when he blesses us, we just forget about him. Good point. All right, how about 9 to 16? <clears throat> oh, Israel, you are destroyed, but your health is perfect. <coughs> I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your city? And your judges to him, you said, give me a king in your instance. 
I get irritated in my anger and took him away. Did you say that 15? 16. The iniquity of the infirmity is bound up. His sin is stored up. The sorrows of a woman and childbirth shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. I will ransom them for the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Though he is fruitful among his brethren, if any wind shall come, the wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasure of every desirable prize. Samaria is held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their enemies shall be dashed in pieces, and their women will shall repent. Okay. As always, there's some translational differences here, but in the New Record Standard, it's your destruction of Israel, verse 9, but you're against me, against your help. God was the one that could help them. They didn't turn to him. So, what about your king and their judges? Would they be able to help them? Why did God give them a king in the first place? They wanted one. Not because it was such a good idea. You know, so he gave them a king in his anger, took him away in his wrath. You know, there's no place for them to turn. When you turn your back on God, there's nothing else that will help. They, they, they're against their only source of help. He says the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is stored up, they've treasured up their sin. He says, you're not a wise son. This is, this is an amazing figure uh, of, of, of childbirth. And the baby comes to the birth canal and refuses to pass through. What do you think about that? That ever happened? Baby just decides, no, I don't want to be born. <laughs> Never heard of a case like that. That'd be a disaster for the poor mother, I would think. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, sounds funny, doesn't it? But he says, he is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. God wanted them to be born again into a new relationship with Him. He wanted their transformation and they were delaying. They were refusing to pass through and be reborn into, into a right relationship with Him. So, He said, He's not a wise son. That's really, that's really stupid. They didn't want to turn back to God. Now, verse 14 is also variously translated, but and, and people have, the translators have a hard time with this because it seems out of the context. But remember, Hosea will go from judgment to blessing to judgment to blessing at a dot. So I think this is not questions. I think it's statements. I will ransom them for the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Oh, death, where's your thorns? Oh, Sheol, where's your sting? I think God is saying. Even after he punishes them, then he's going to bring them back and he's going to bless them. He is not going to, you know, leave them dead and gone forever. Even in this passage where he's promising the judgment and destruction, he's also saying that he's going to, to, to bring them back and bless them again. How about your questions through verse 14? In 15, God is going to use the east wind to dry up Israel. I think the east wind probably refers to Assyria, was going to come through and devastate their land. He's going to hold Samaria guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. That's a one-word summary of Israel's history, rebelled. And therefore God was going to hold them guilty and cause them to pass through some unspeakable atrocities. Questions and comments?
came to try the last chapter here, I think we can do that. And uh, we can put Jose in the archives or something. Uh, we wouldn't want to read it again. All right, would somebody read chapter 14? Return, O Israel, to the Lord, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take word with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. Nor will we say again, Our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will like the dew. I will be like the dew of Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again rise grain, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am a a luxuriant cypress, from me comes the fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the way of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Okay. In 1 to 3, what's Hosea doing? Repentance. Now, he gives some specifics here about what the repentance should look like. I think there are times when we may not understand repentance and restoration of the relationship with God the way we ought to. What did they normally want to take with them to come back to God? Animal sacrifices. What does he say to take with them? Words. words. Why words? What does he mean by that? Possession. Yes. You cannot restore a personal relationship by merely sacrificing some animals. You restore that relationship by some the words of confession and personal commitment. It is easier to give flowers than to apologize, isn't it, guys? Um, and, uh, you know, Psalm 69.30 says, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving, and I will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. You know, what God wants is the words of confession and praise. So say to God, take away all our iniquity and receive us graciously. That we, will present, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Tell God that you're not going to trust in Assyria or horses or idols anymore. You're going to turn only to Him. We can't expect our relationship with God to be restored without confessing to Him, without seeking verbally to reestablish our relationship with Him. And we've got to renounce this confidence in everything but God, which is our major issue. You know, trusting the horses, the chariots, or the nations, or whatever. All right, comments and questions on one to three. That's good for, for uh, relationships with each other. And I think it's good I'm trying to restore a relationship with your brethren. You know, you, if you need to make a confession, renounce the sin. Say, say what you've done and say, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. For whatever reason, it seems so hard for us to say those things. We'd rather just sort of, you know, hope everybody understands. <laughs> so much better to, to
to say I was wrong and to say here's what I'm going to do. That is the right thing. We've got to humble ourselves to speak those things. Good point. What do you see God doing in 4 to 8? Loving them, healing them, and 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 what's he going to make of like? Well, for one thing, the cedars of Lebanon. Yeah, she's a beautiful picture. Yes, he's going to make them vigorous and fresh and sturdy plants. You know, the, the, he exploits the flora and fauna of Israel to make this, this idea. You know, I will love them and heal them. I'll be like the dew. And he'll blossom and take root like the cedars. His shoots will sprout. He'll be as beautiful as an olive tree. His fragrance like the cedars. You know, and he'll blossom like the vine. And, uh, you know, it'll be a luxuriant cypress. God is saying, I'm going to make him a, a vigorous, fruitful, luxuriant plant. God is going to bless his people again. They're not going to be scrubby, you know, like vegetation. They're going to be thriving. Uh, trees and, and, and flowers and bushes. That's what God can do for us. He is the source of our fruitfulness. And so there's the blessing once they repent. And then in verse 9. If you know, if you're wise and discerning, then listen and uh, know that the ways of God are right.